welcome to episode 132 of the Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. My God, I'm so glad we're behind us, the safety of the screen now. The protective layers of technology between us we won't have we'll have fewer audio issues i hope i hope we're all in our own isolation chambers bringing our isolated yeah. thoughts here to the dive down right now what's the worst that could happen it's a real bo burnham inside situation where we're more comfortable <laughs> virtually than in person i heard that was like a meta commentary uh also with us the godfather dave harbarker I got a lot of other thoughts about Bo Burnham inside. If we want to spend some time on that later, maybe sure. I heard Shane likes yeah. to talk about it too. Uh, yeah. I have a lot of thoughts about it. Our bonus episode where we just analyzing <laughs> Bo Burnham's inside. Yeah. I'm, everybody's been waiting for our content on that. I kind of liked it. Same. <laughs> Is it harder or better when you can't tell that I'm making eye contact with you? Cause when we were sitting in Dave's basement, there was a lot of hard eye contact. I'm looking directly at the camera. It just feels like you're always making eye contact with me, and that makes me feel uh, cherished. On this week's episode, it's time for some spoilers again. That's right. It feels like we just got through spoiler season, and it's already time to talk about magic doing Dungeons & Dragons. Here it is. Uh, This felt really fast. Also, what's what's wild is like 95% of the, the set is already spoiled. Like it's live next week or something. It's live before this episode comes out. I think, I believe that <sighs> it, that the set is going live on arena and magic online on Thursday, July 8th. And this regularly scheduled episode will go live on Friday, July 9th. Dave, we haven't put out an episode on Friday in weeks, weeks. Yeah. You know, we have a little bit of flex there, but we might come out the same day. It's true. So maybe it comes out tomorrow. <clears throat> Yeah, you never know. You never I mean, know. I mean, the set, set will not do anything to any of the formats we play, so it doesn't really matter. Okay, no spoilers, Shane. Thanks for... People are just going to turn it off now. I might have a card or two that disagrees. But today, we are going to make some more of our famously informed evaluations for cards that roll a natural 20 in modern and historic, and maybe consider some critical misses as well. How much did it hurt you to make those D&D-based puns, Stan? I felt you withering away from the microphone a little bit, as you did. At least I didn't have to write them. Oh, fair enough. We're going to warm up first with a quick check-in on the ever-evolving modern format as it continues to change shape thanks to Modern Horizons 2. Starting to feel a little familiar, I'd say. But every week, it seems to have a slightly new take on what the best deck of the week is, which is exciting, an exciting thing to observe and report on. But before all that, let's housekeep. Some wild housekeeping this week. Yeah, a really wild week in the in the Patreon this week, thanks to a grassroots community effort to push our episodes to the $500 a week mark so that we would hit our deck box stretch goal, finally, that we've been hovering dangerously close to on and off over the last year. A few members of the Patreon, led by uh, Jason, a.k.a. Kilgore Trout, decided they want to try to get us a push to that goal. And so I just wanted to say, before we got to the list of new and upgrading patrons, we just wanted to say thank you to everybody for the outpouring of support. We really appreciate it. Of course, we appreciate all of you every day. The ones we talk to, the ones we don't always talk to, we, uh, we appreciate all of you. We didn't ask anyone to do this. We didn't try to motivate and galvanize our patrons to give us more money. But In fact, in fact I would say I would encourage people not to give us money. 
because then there's logistics involved. That's right. But in these deck boxes, people want the deck boxes. We haven't seen what they look like. We don't know what the logo was going to be, what type of art or style or construction they'll have. But it seems that the people want them, and we're going to do what we can to make them happen. And so, uh, before we go too much deeper on that, I just wanted to say thank you to new patrons, Evan coming in hot and Cloudy. Thank you for joining us in the Dive Down Nation. And then the increased tiers list is where things really got wild. As uh, while we were all together, or the day after we were all together recording, they all popped into the Patreon. And this is the list. Purple Platt, two Mickey S's. Not one, but two Mickey S's up their tiers. Grant R, Jack L, Lou, Dom, Odin, and the aforementioned... Jason slash Kilgore Trout. We appreciate all of you. Thank you so much for, for pushing us closer to the line. Uh, and we're getting close. You know, we're $60 an ep away from, from hitting that $500 an episode gold. So it's not, you know, we're 15% away or so. Um, so if you want to join us, join the Dive Down Nation, help us get to this goal and also get things like play mats and buttons and stickers and a bunch of things that are going to go out in the mail really, really soon. Uh, check us out at patreon.com slash the dive down. Help us make this final push. You know, it's a kind of random time to ask, but uh, we're getting close. And so everybody could get something extra. And the deck box goal, I believe, Shane, correct me if I'm wrong, is for people at $5 and up, they get a deck box. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. So it's lower. It's a lower goal than the, than than the playmat goal is. Of course, if you do the playmat, you get both. Right on. Yeah, so yeah, patreon.com slash the dive down. We're also... Uh, brought to you in part by Mana Traders. You can, if you want to sign up for Mana Traders, use code the Dive Down Twenty Twenty One, all one word and numbers. Uh, saves you fifteen percent off your first two months there. We know that people have been using that recently, so we appreciate that. Of course, who's on, who's on the news desk this week? Who's who is it? Who wrote this? I wrote a lot of this. Well, then you better you, then Dave. You're on the news desk, my friend. But I'm hoping that Modern Horizons Two Watch watching the horizon again. I think we can all hop in here pretty equally. You know, we had oh, yeah. a couple of great tournaments to look at this this week. The first one we had is a Modern Showcase Challenge. You know, I guess what Stan was intimating a little bit at the beginning of the episode is that Modern is still changing, still evolving. You know, MH Two seems to be uh, it was obviously having a big impact on things, but it's also um, it's continuing to change. It's not like there's just one deck that's hitting it over and over again right now. Although there's a lot of people thinking there's one card that's kind of hitting it all over and over again, and we'll we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but we had a couple of events we wanted to talk people through, and so like I said, let's start with the Modern Showcase Challenge, which was on Saturday, July third. It's the first event of the weekend, and um, I don't know if you guys know, but there is a person on Reddit, Bamzing. We've talked about them a couple of times, who does a really excellent and quick breakdown of these events each time. We are looking at Bamzing's data for both this event and the next one that we have. A couple of notes that were interesting from this write-up, so thank you to Bamzing, as usual. They noted this tournament had 400 players in it. That's a few. That's huge for, for uh, Magic Online right, right now. 426. Yeah, I mean, what what were the top decks like? Did they go like eight and two or something like that? Like this was a lot of rounds, right? Yeah, I think that the the records were something like that to be able to to go on. Um, and of course, in these we don't really have access to the the broader f- field, the broader meta, but we do get to see the top thirty twos whenever we have these online challenges. And so here's what was in the top thirty two. I'm just gonna read the top ten decks or so right here, and kind of take it from there. So, in the number one slot 
of the top 32, there were five blue-red Merktide Regent decks. What? Yeah, that's somewhat new, right? It's like a new spin mm-hmm. on an old friend. And we'll come back. After that was four mono-white hammer decks featuring Luris, three four-color footfall decks, three blue-red blue prowess decks, three black-red DRC decks featuring Luris, two teamer living end, and two teamer footfalls decks. Those were all the decks that were not one-ofs in this tournament in the top 32. And then quickly, in the one-ofs, there were there was a four-color grieving end a another kind of blue red DRC deck that was a little mid rangey five color scape shift John Ragavan Grixis Shadow Grixis Control black red waste knot mono red prowess glimpse of tomorrow cascade and a four color Velamachus deck not bad I mean the one offs are much bigger than than any of the the large groups here but the surprise to me and I think the surprise to many people watching modern this weekend is that blue red Murktide deck suddenly emerging as the top deck in the field. Uh, of 32. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's not too surprising, perhaps, right? Because I feel like we're seeing a consolidation of power around red right now, and then red especially with blue. And I think we're sort of seeing what the two shapes of those decks look like. And the first one we have, the more power, uh, more popular one, at least this weekend, was this Merktide Regent-based deck, which is essentially the counterspell somewhat reactive version rather than the more proactive version of is it blitz and so we see for drc a typically a couple dreadheart arcanists just for like recursion spell value for ragavan nimble pilferer and then of course for murktide regent and murktide regent is the delve flying threat that's five blue blue but of course has delve uh, enters with a 1-1 counter for each instant and sorcery card that was exiled when you cast it. And then whenever another instant or sorcery card leaves your graveyard, you can put another 1-1 counter on Merktide. So I think as some of these decks, they typically might have a few snaps just for some extra 1-1 counter value and just, of course, the value that Snapcaster provides. What's interesting about the... F- uh, I mean, I'll just talk about the first place deck as kind of like maybe maybe like a prototype of this, right? Or like maybe an example is yeah, piloted by MTG Milan on Twitter or MZ Blazer on Moto, uh, well known online grinder there. Yeah. So you might be like, okay, well, this is going to be somewhat different than our prowess style decks or the blitz style decks, but it's really not too much because it only has a couple counterspell. It has no force of negations. So like when I when I when I think about this deck versus the Blitz decks, like let's say just a week ago, it would have a much larger counterspell suite. And I would say, I'm going to sort of out tempo you with my Ragavan, get Ragavan value, and Dragon's Ray Challenger channeler. I, I did it again, I said challenger, uh, to sort of dig through the deck and that kind of stuff. But I think this deck is not as reactive as the more tempo-y Delvery style that we saw. And it's not, it's interesting, sort of like just an evolution almost of Maybe this is what Blitz is going to start looking like, but probably not. Counterpoint. I, I don't think this is a Blitz deck. I'm not saying it's a Blitz deck. I'm saying it's not as different looking from Blitz as I as we saw last week. 
It does have some pretty serious di- divergences here, of course, because the threats are total. The threat suit's totally different. I mean, other than Dragon's Rage Chandler, you don't have any prowess creatures in here. You're not trying to combo off, cast a bunch of spells in a single turn. Like you just you can't go that fast in this deck. Although I have heard people mention things like, "Oh, it's not that hard to get a uh, like turn two or turn three seven seven off of Murktide Regent," which is kind of like, "Huh, I, I haven't got a chance to play this deck yet." Uh, but, um, you know, it plays a lot slower. There's more, a lot more sorceries in this deck with Serum Visions and Sleight of Hand. Thought Scour is in this deck. You don't play that in, in Blitz. So it's, it's a pretty different spell suite, but I do think that what you're saying in that there was four counter spells in this deck before, and now there isn't, is totally true. I just think this is like a bigger kind of slower version of a kind of more mid midi kind of deck than Prowess, right? Well, like, and then you can look down on the fifth place list. Like, Freed Mania is another example of the two versions, 2.5 versions of this deck, right? Where we see four DRC, four Merktide, four Ragavan, and then they're playing four Counterspell, three Force of Negation, even a Spell Pierce main, and then f- uh, four Unholy Heat, which is just like, you know, let's play the full amount for my removal suite. And so, yeah, this is this is filling the graveyard with Thought Scars, it's filling the graveyard with removal and counter magic. Uh, but isn't going for the full first place deck. What had uh, had the two Dreadheart Arcanist, fourteen threats instead of twelve, and so we're just seeing different versions of this deck. I think evolving very quickly in front of our eyes, and I think we'll continue to see this happen until the quote unquote best list or the best list for the week continues to emerge. Yeah, I think that's more what this is. This is what's the best list for the week is what's going to keep coming up here. And why why Merktide Regent though, and why now? Do you think? this card is, is kind of popping up as a good threat that can hold a deck together like this together. Sam, what do you think? Well, first of all, it's a cheap threat, right? This deck is designed to get it out for two mana usually. So baseline two mana, three, three flyer, I think is fine. But also, of course, it scales, but it's technically a seven drop. So at seven CMC, it evades a lot of popular removal right now. So if you are able to delve you know even one instant or sorcery from the graveyard it evades bolt you can delve enough instant sorcery or sorceries that it also evades unholy heat right and one of the other premier removal spells that we've seen emerge after mh2 prismatic ending is never going to tag this yeah so it kind of I, th- I think it capitalizes on the lack of path to exile right now and just kind of those white decks in general totally agree and that's the big thing here right is that this this is kind of that storm wing entity kind of axis where the removal that is popular to play doesn't line up particularly well against this. And so decks going into this weekend, maybe if they weren't thinking about Murktide Regent, for example, maybe Black Red didn't have enough Terminate effects around to go with it. Maybe, you know, there weren't enough seal of removals in the the decks that, uh, like in the tempo decks in you know, your prowess playing seal of removal or or even vapor snag to just be able to pick this card back up right away. Yeah, and remember like the first few weeks we saw a whole lot of uh solitude mm-hmm. style effects and, and I think people are leaning really heavily on like you mentioned, Stan, like prismatic ending, path to exile is kind of falling out of favor, but we might see that kind of make a circle back because people are like, Well, I can't always hit what I want, even though it's doesn't ramp my opponent and it's super effective uh, largely. But one thing that I do think is interesting that is a very good counter to Merktide 
is something that we see in the next sort of bucket of decks, right? Like these cascade decks. There's yeah. a lot of these cascade decks. Yeah, so many. So that if you if you group together the Footfalls decks, Living End, and Glimpse of Tomorrow into a sort of like cascade general archetype together, there were nine of the top 32 were that. Uh, yeah. Actually, it's 10 of the top 32 is that. And the card I'm getting at is Subtlety. Like, like subtlety mm-hmm. hitting a Murktide Regent is a blowout. And so I think I imagine that players who are good with this deck who go up against subtlety decks probably hold up Counterspell. Like they're just going to be patient and wait till they have Counterspell and the mat, the mana required to get their Murktide out. But if you are trying to race one out and you're like, well, maybe this is the time I go for it, and you get that subtlety, that is really nasty. And... <laughs> You all have been playing against various versions and playing with various versions of these Cascade decks, and almost a third of this top 32 is some kind of Cascade variant. What are you thinking? What are you feeling about these decks right now? Yeah, so I did a league with the Teamer version this week, just because that deck has been really interesting to me. And I've noticed this back and forth among the MTGO players between going to four color, so you can have Ardent Plea, and 12 copies of the Cascade Rhino combo versus just the Teemo version with eight copies of Cascade. And I think, you know, what you're sacrificing by playing Ardent Plea is a little bit more interaction. You're cutting things like Bone Crusher Giant or maybe Subtlety, some number of ways to interact with your opponent. And maybe that makes sense if, you know, Bone Crusher Giant, for example, doesn't line up with what your opponents are doing. But I feel like Bone Crusher removes enough of the creatures that are popular in the format right now that it is worth it. So maybe it's just the flavor of the week and we'll continue to see these football decks go back and forth between four color and three. I feel like the move to dead and gone mm-hmm. is kind of replacing a lot of what stomp is doing on the bone crusher giant. end, and like the, the dead side of dead and gone is just a one red mana instant that deals two damage to a creature. So, like, that's a perfectly good magma spray effect. Like, even on turn one to stop a monkey, for example. And then we're seeing, I think, we're seeing Den and Gone as, like, a two-of staple in these decks now. And it kind of just appeared last week, I think, when I was looking at these lists. I was like, what's what's Den and Gone? And that was, in like, that was when I started seeing that, in like, the, the eight players in that uh, showcase challenge thing or the, you know, the Mox final I think the other thing we might see is people will want to play more Ardent Please and be more in on this combo when there's fewer Blood Moon effects. Because this Ardent sure. Plea deck has one basic forest. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, the one that I see in second place has an island, yeah. Yeah, it also has one island. But it's still, I think it's very vulnerable to Blood Moon effects. And the three-color team version can play Blood Moon, at least in the sideboard sometimes. So I think that's also part of the equation that kind of goes back and forth. Stan, what did you? How did you feel about playing this deck, though? Like, I kind of find it like uh, kind of a bummer to play against these, and it feels a little bit like a really, you know, I, I just don't know. It's one of those like you got to have something to deal with with shardless agent somehow right away, or you die. Yeah, uh, that's kind of a drag. I mean, it, it, you know, and having to deal with tokens really early can be kind of like warping to having to deal with uh, those. So, and, and before you go in, Stan, on that too is. Do you feel like these decks are actually powerful enough? Like, are, are Rhinos really good enough? I'll answer the questions in the order, in reverse order of them being received. I do think the Rhinos are, are good enough. 
it's it's eight power on the board with trample. I think that's a lot to deal with. And as long as we have fewer fatal push effects out there and and, and fewer prismatic endings, I think they're actually pretty hard to get rid of. And using an unholy heat on a rhino token doesn't feel good. Um, I already forgot Dave's question, but I, I think this deck is fantastic in part because you get more than two rhinos and you can really get to this point where maybe you suspend a rhino on turn one or not, but it's like after turn three, you're threatening eight more power every turn. And then those early turns, you do have reasonable disruption where you can actually like prevent your opponent from having a blowout. Um, and and for Bonecrusher Giant, one of the reasons why I have like that card in the team version is it's a whole other threat too that they have to worry about that shocks them when they try to remove it. Mm-hmm. My my question and the reason that I'm like, are these decks really good enough? But they continued to win and see play. It was like the interaction seems a little mopey, like because you have to spend a little bit more to do what you want. Besides the split cards, sort of now interestingly take being taking advantage of costing more because of the combined CMC costs. Like it used to be kind of a cheat where it'd be like, well, this, this side is actually less for the cascade stuff. And so I can, I can cheat it out. And so that's it. That's a kind of interesting way to be able to like, well, I get one mana interaction like on that undead. You mean cascade is just broken kind of in general because you get to, you get to game around it no matter what the rules are. Anyway, yeah, another well, time, another time. We'll talk well, about this. So like, but what I'm getting at is like, so these, these decks have to stop the opposing battlefield or even a few creatures from sort of sticking and snowballing in a way that gets the gets the opponent into a space that they're going to win. Like you don't have sweepers, you don't have you don't have the ability to like catch up against flyers, for instance. Besides maybe like a brazen bower or something like that. But like living end, for example, is like a cascade deck that like just has a strong game plan against the creature centric decks that we're seeing right now. Like it doesn't have to worry about losing the battlefield early. Like besides maybe like a Ragavan just getting a little bit out ahead and like getting a, a stronger creature out than it intended than it was you know, prepared for, because you just flip the board so wildly when you when you living end and and just you know, get your stuff back out and their stuff in the graveyard. Mm-hmm. All right. Anyway, I think that's enough about the Cascade decks. Last question, Stan. Was it fun? That's fine. Was it fun? It was very fun. Yeah, I might I'm, I might sleep it up in paper. I've, I've actually bought three Gemstone Caverns to play this in paper, and I might take it to the next modern tournament in town. You did ask me if I had any gemstone caverns. I'm sorry to hear that someone else did. All right, so the other one of the next things that surprised me about this top 32 is that the only Urza Saga decks in this top 32 were four Hammer Times. No food, no Titan. The world turns. That's good, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's interesting. I don't know if it means anything. You know, this particular event, I don't know if it means anything that that wasn't there, really. Like, I don't know if... Blue, blue, red, Murktide, for example, has a particularly good matchup against Asmo or Green, Green Food or Golgari Food or any of that kind of stuff. But um, I, I don't, I don't see anything that makes me feel like the power of those decks has diminished for some reason. But they're just not here this time. Maybe they're vulnerable to counterspells, and maybe enough people are packing endurance to make Urza Saga a liability that actually you know gets them down on resources. Right. It's interesting. But Shane, you you're pretty into Hammer Time. Yeah, I like Hammer Time a lot right now. I don't. I mean, I think like I talked about what was it last week, two weeks ago? Yeah, last week. The I think that it's a nice way to use food. I think right now the food decks because I also played some food decks in the past, and I think they get punished by Counterspell. Really, decks pretty hard. Why? Oh yeah. Oh, because 
when you're trying to get an Urza out and like your only counter magic is like uh what metallic rebuke or something like that, it can just be kind of rough to be like, I need to resolve an expensive threat to actually sort of turn the corner here. And then you and then I think a lot of the other opponents that you're facing right now are prepared for Urza Saga. So you can't just say, I'm gonna stick an Urza Saga and get two constructs down and just finish the game that way, because people are getting rid of your Urza's saga before you get that full value out of it. So I think that that is, I think it's a, it's a consequence, I think, of one, these tempo-y, counter decks getting a bit more aggressive while retaining enough counter magic, and then putting pressure on the food decks in ways that, like, if you want to get rid of a Murktide region, you better have four food. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know I mean? Which is not unreasonable at all. But it takes some time and some effort to get there. All right, Blue-Red Prowess. Still three of them. Still kind of what it is. It's it is the uh, the DRC version, of course. But um, you know, people are kind of sticking with it for what it is. Next to Hammer, it just seems like the next best aggro deck in the format, or consistently still the best among the best aggro decks in the format. Yeah, I think it still it still clearly is. I don't know if it's tier one or if it's tier two. You know, tier two if it's one of the truly best decks right now, but it's still there and people still play it. I guess it's the deck that I have sleep. You know, the first deck that I sleeved up right now. I'm just waiting for four copies of Paper Expressive Iteration to get here so that I actually have a modern deck to play in Paper if that comes up for me anytime soon. Uh, what do we think of this top thirty-two overall? Any any last final gut thoughts? I, I kind of hinted it. What I was feeling earlier, which is like, I think we're seeing like a really significant color balance shift right now. And I think green and green and white are just not really serious players outside of like the support role that we're seeing with green and white, white is in hammer time. Like remember when solitude was the most played creature in, in like the league, it was just like everywhere. Like solitude was everywhere. Yeah. Stoneforge was everywhere. There's there's no copies of Solitude in this top 32. The only decks playing Stoneforge in this top 32 are the Hammer decks. I, I'm not saying that these decks and, and these colors are are outmoded, but I think we're seeing like people really experiment and and have fun with uh, Grixis colors right now, and they're doing very well. Both Rakdos, you know, Rakdos and it and even some Grixis-style decks are, are killing it. I don't know. I, I think that I like that we're in a space where nothing is scaring me too much where it's, I think that everything has weapons against it. And I think that we're going to see people respond to that. And in that fashion, I'm happy to see that because that's just part of the evolution of modern that we're, we're able to see right now. We 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 weren't really able to see that before modern horizons too, because things were so set and we knew what was happening and we knew the strengths and weaknesses of the decks. And now we're discovering those and seeing the evolution. And it's, it's fun to be able to talk about every week. Yeah. You know, similar to what Shane said, I don't, think anything is particularly scary at the moment and even stuff that we thought was scary has sort of leveled out like urza saga i mean that was the first card you know Mm -hmm. people to talk about that got people to talk about potentially bans it's everywhere and now it's not yeah at least in this event it's kind of amazing how quick the ebb and flow has been because i think a week or two ago we were talking about how footfalls is gone and here we are it's one of the most popular decks in the tournament and i think that's kind of an interesting place for the online metagame to be Makes me wonder where the paper meta game would be right now too, just because that one evolves at a slightly different pace, and I think it tends to be a lot more open. You know, imagine if there were SCGs right now. I, I am thinking about the impact of MH2 on aggressive decks in particular, and how or why Prowess is still like one of the premier aggro decks, and 
you know, even though footfalls and, and various food or saga decks kind of come in and out of the format, it feels like the Domain Zoo deck is just kind of gone. And it feels like hardened scales. Like, we haven't seen that make a comeback. We haven't seen it in the same ebb and flow as, as sort of these other strategies or, or even the uh, affinityless or true affinity decks, right? Just you wait about 10 minutes. Oh, we'll yeah? have something to say about hardened scales, but yeah. Or, or uh, even even fewer because it's in it's in it's on the next day's challenge. Yeah, I'm gonna go really quick over the top eight of this challenge just so we we see what made it all the way through. So, like we mentioned, MZ Blazer and Darth Kid split the finals of this, uh, and so MZ Blazer was on Merktide, and Darth Kid was on Four Color Footfalls. The next decks were Four Color Grieving End from Glacier Seven, Blue Red Prowess from the Nair, Blue Red Merktide again from Freed Mania. Uh, Shane talked about that deck. Mono White Hammer from Hamuda. A kind of interesting mid-rangey blue-red DRC list from White Star. White Star. And five-color scape shift from Corrado. The the mid-rangey kind of seventh place deck here on Bamsing's write-up, it says that it's just guy, but I actually didn't see any white cards in it. It is it's basically like wear tear in the sideboard, I think. Oh, is that what it is? Got Pretty it. much. Got it, got it, got it. It was interesting because it's Sprite Dragon, Ragavan, Dragon, uh, Rage Channeler, two Snapcaster Mage, and then it's just fully loaded up on Counterspells. It's four Archmage's Charms, four Counterspell, three Force of Negation, lighter on removal. It's only got two Unholy Heaths, but four Lightning Bolts. So it's another iteration of that blue-red shell. So I feel like there's kind of like blue-red prowess, super aggro. There's this kind of like medium-sized one here, which, you know, it still only runs all one and two drops, but... You know, they don't grow as much, and it's got Sprite Dragon instead of Murktide dwell, uh, Regent, and then the Murktide deck, which feels like the bigger version of it. So there's a whole bunch of blue-red decks floating around right now. All right, let's talk quickly about the Sunday Modern event, which uh, we can talk about the top eight really quickly. Actually, sure. I, I just got the top 32, so I'm just going to read out the top 32 breakdown to everybody here. Oh, yeah. Four blue-red Murktide in the top 32, leading the pack. And again, in second place it, with three decks is Mono White Hammer with Luris, three blue-red Prowess, and then two four-color Grieving End. And that is all of the multiple decks that were in the top 32. The rest of the top 32 is one-ofs. And I'm going to read the one-ofs really quickly. So that means that there <laughs> are what? There's... 20 one-ofs. So it's Hardened Scales, Grixis Shadow, Five-Color Humans, Blue-White Taxes with Yorian, Five-Color Elementals with Kahira, Abzan, Teamer Footfalls, Black-Green Food, Ad Nauseam, Green-White Heli- Heliod, Black-Red DRC with Luris, Five-Color Scapeshift, Four-Color Elementals, Four-Color Footfalls, uh, Black-White Metal Blade, Mono-Red Prowess, Mono-Green Tron, Esper Control, Bant Stone Blade, and Eldrazi Tron. That looks like fun. This tournament looks like fun to me. Yeah, modern's the best. Why not? Play anything you want. Have fun. So this is the tournament where we saw not only our Heart and Scales players, but our Amulet players come back. Humans. Taxes. Yeah. Elementals. Ad nauseum. I like that one player is like, I don't need that fifth color. I just have four is enough for me. My elementals are only four. So yeah, the second place... So we talked about... The first place list of this is a hammer list. So hammer one. All right. Uh, It's an interesting version of hammer because it is does not have Giver of Runes in it, and it does not have... Uh, what's the other is card that Bam Singh noted? Swift, is this the one with like Swift ho- Foot Boots and stuff? It does not like, have Esper Sentinels. So Yeah, this, this player, I think, played... I think they actually 
like placed in the top 32 on Saturday, and then they came back and won the whole thing on Sunday. Yeah, it's good enough. It has Steel Shaper's gift, and it is back in it, and a couple other things like that. Uh, so interesting to see. Dave, I want to ask you a question about some of these Rakdos decks. Mm-hmm. Because you because you played it a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I trophied with it. Oh, oh yeah, still um, riding that high. What what do you think about the 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 castles or the legendary Kamigawa lands? Shinka, the blood soaked keep, and Shizo Death's storehouse. Yeah, I mean it's an interesting note. I, I think we would have spent a little bit more talk, time talking about it if these decks had done better this weekend. They kind of did just okay, uh, but those definitely had like a financial spike in the last week and a half or so, where they went from being like cards that people weren't paying a ton of attention to all of a sudden being like I think twenty. $20 cards, $25 cards, maybe more. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think they're cool. I think it's you don't really get punished for running them too badly because the deck was already ready running a bunch of kind of like, you know, it was running Castle, Lock, Castle Lockthwain and stuff like that. And these cards come in untapped, right? They do. Yeah, so they come in untapped. So it's you don't get punished too badly. And what they really do in most ways is they let, your, they let Ragavan get through. So it's like with the red one, you can make sure that Ragavan is able to win in combat. And so they have to give up a card to keep it from getting through, even though it costs you some mana. And, if, and on the other one, it gets evasion because they have Ragavan gets fear, the old, old mechanic fear. And I just think they're nice, like utility things to have to make your Ragavan's more potent as threat. Yeah. I mean, connecting with the Ragavan's a lot different than uh, getting blocked. I heard that. Yeah. On the internet. Way, way different. Right. You know, and occasionally maybe you're going to have Kroxa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do it or something or, or Turok, but to, to get in for, for the kill. But um, I, I think they're cards that are totally worth running in this deck. So, but cool tech there. Dave, speaking of Kroxa, uh, I looked at my, my inventory and the one that I was continually living in the, under the impression I had two. No, you have my second and you own it now. I so do I'll never get that back. And I bought another one so that I can play these, these decks as well. I bought, I bought all the cards to be able to finish playing this deck as soon as it went a little bit out of vogue. <laughs> So, so we'll speak, see what speaking from here. of hold on, speaking of stuff, I want to I want to quiz you all because I feel like we're all itching to get back in the LGS. Stan's probably been playing with all of his other friends in paper already. Uh, My rares binder is up to date, ready to trade. Trades oh anybody? Anybody got trades? What are, what are you buying? What are you buying? You guys what know that into the next like three three months of walking into LGS is just going to be, I have fetch lands and want other things. And everyone's yes. going to be like, but I have fetch lands and want <laughs> other things. And you're going to be like, Ugh. Anybody need a scalding tarn? I got, I got a scalding tarn. <laughs> yeah. So many scalding tarns. Uh, yeah. What have you been buying? Stan, you said that you were finishing up footfalls. Oh, what haven't I been buying, David? Okay. I, have to, I, I have to use my inside voice so no one hears me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I finished teamer footfalls. Um, I, now I'm trying to finish the blue red Merc Tide deck. I need one more Merc Tide, and we're there. Uh-huh. I actually bought a Merc Tide from our patron Grant. Huh? Thanks, uh-huh. buddy. Um, I'm also trying to get this bra- black red uh, Luris deck finished. So like, I just need a Dothy, and that that's done. I'm not gonna play with the keeps. I'm not going to play with Shinka and Shizo just because yeah, I'm not going to try. Either. I don't think it's worth it to spend 40 bucks on those two lands. They're also not easy to find. Like the paper supply of cards from Kamigawa is sometimes really difficult, especially if you're going to like go to our, our LGS and try to get them. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so that's what you're up to Stan. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's about it. How about you, Dave? <laughs> 
Uh, kind of the same. I mean, I, I'm not trying to finish Footfalls, but I did. I had to get expressive iteration to be able to actually play Blitz in paper. I had to be able to um, get the last cards for Black Red, you know, and then also I had to be able to get uh, finish this Murktide deck. So that's mostly what I'm trying to do is just have those three decks around right now. Although I guess the other deck that I have that I could play, which I, I would consider playing, even though we haven't seen it much, is I would consider playing Jeskai uh, Stoneblade. So I bought a Calder Complete to be able to do that too, because I mm-hmm. never opened one in all right. the packs that I opened. Yeah, so th- that seemed like a no-brainer to just finish that up. And also, it's a deck that runs Counterspell and Lightning Bolt, and so, you know, that's fun for me. It, you know, it's been so long. It feels like it's been forever since the set came out that I completely forgot that I also finished my play set of fetches and got a Calder Complete and got Ragavans to play the Jeskai Monkey Blade deck. I spent a lot of money on MH2. I did too. I oh, really yeah. don't want to say. I mean, I bought a set box and a draft box. And then, and I had like the greatest draft box ever. I, did, I talked to people about <laughs> this in the, um, in the chat, but I had, I had opened like 43 rares and nine or 10, uh, mythics out of the set. So like two thirds of my packs had two rares in it essentially. And it was all garbage. It was like all garbage <laughs> rares, but I, you know, just through sheer force of will, I managed to be able to kind of recover the value. That's not modern legal, Dave. Yeah. How about you, Shane? I mean, I don't know this. I, I just, I bought, yeah, I got, I got a couple set boxes and opened well, and I've just been trading a lot, like trading the stuff. I, like I, tra- I, sold, I sold a couple ragavans out because I just, I don't need them. I'm not going to buy two more. I'm not going to play the, I don't have force of negation because I sold mine at, GP Phoenix, and that's really impacted my ability to play any of these tempo decks because I'm not buying back in at like four times the price. So mm. I'm kicking myself there, but there's plenty of other decks to play. Like, is it prowess? And I upgraded Yogg with Ignobles and some Grists and finished Hammer, which I'm hyped about. And you know, I I, I bought uh, my 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 buddy who's into Russian cards online. He's he was like kind of selling out some stuff, so I bought back into the some blue cons fetches that I had sold a while ago in Russian and I got the Russian stone forge for the hammer stuff. So yeah, I'm amped. I'm amped to play some hammer and paper probably, or maybe yog. I don't know. There's just, there's, I just need I need some weekend events at the LGS. Yeah. I mean, as usual, Stan and I are building the same decks and Shane is <laughs> off in some other direction of, of good decks as well, which is pretty funny. Golgari food. Yeah. Shane's building the decks that I'm going to try to put together in like two years for a gauntlet of cards that aren't shared across strategies. Exactly. All right, should we get out of here and move on to the yeah. to the next segment? I mean, I know we didn't spend a ton of time on that Sunday challenge, but uh, yeah, Hammer, Hardened Scales, Murktide, Grixis Shadow, Five Color Humans, Blue White Taxes, Five Color Elementals, and Obzon were the top eight of that event. Uh, go check out Bam Zing's write-up if you want to see, but it's interesting to see kind of a completely different top eight than what we had in the other one, even though some of the decks are repeated. There's also just kind of more decks in this one, so... Yeah, so stick around. We're about to dive into our card evaluations for Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. We have way too much time remaining in this episode. Stay with us because we're going to start off with a super hot take, boiling hot take right off the bat. Don't touch that dial. Stay with us. And we're back. 
So, you know, we just wrapped up the previous segment talking about how we spent so much money on MH2. And I feel better about that because I don't think I'm going to end up spending any money on this D&D set. Wow. Okay. We're starting with fire. I, fire. I, okay. I will. I'm just going to, before we get negative at all, okay? If you go back into the archives, you will hear me be excited and hopeful for the D&D set. I feel I think we all were. I think we're all were like, yeah, this should be cool. There should be some cool stuff. It's going to be neat to have a not a normal core set. Maybe we'll do some neat stuff and and so far I have to say I'm a little bit anxious about this one. <laughs> a little bit anxious in terms of too much of, power. I mean, what's power about the mythic yeah. slot? What kind of anxiety are you having? Exactly. Well, okay, well, that's a good point. Well, I'm I'm anxious that I won't have anything to purchase. Okay, I'm I like I probably I probably like won't even buy this on Arena. I won't even buy like a bundle. I'm just gonna like use wild cards or something. Because man, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. That's this is the this is the most negative we're coming in to a set review, and I am apologized for it. So welcome to our dive down section for this week. <laughs> what I'm calling venture into the adventure. <laughs> Card evaluations of Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. We haven't really talked about this set a ton, and it kind of crept up on us. I think we did a couple of early spoilers, a few like when they shared a few cards. But uh, this set's going live in like seventy-two hours, and uh, this is the first time that I've really looked at the spoiler over the last couple of weeks. And I'll I'll say, yeah, I kind of agree with all you guys. I do think there's a lot for people who like Dungeons and Dragons to be excited about yes, here. And so yes. actually the first thing I wanted to do is just ask you guys, this like, is contextual. This is a contextual like, and don't like from us. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, is it like, well, first thing I want to know a little bit, like what about you guys in D and D? Like what's, what's your history with D and D? Like, were you into it when you were a kid? Was it a thing, you know, like Stan, what's your, what's your history with D and D generally? N.A. N.A. Yep. Okay. I tried a couple brief campaigns with some friends here and there, and it just never really captured my imagination. It's not yeah. competitive enough, and I just don't really like, as as a gamer, I don't really like co-op games. I like playing against a person or have team versus team and like there being clear winners and losers rather than the, <laughs> the choose-your-own-adventure RPG style of a D&D campaign. Wow, Stan is much more spiky. If you ever wondered yeah. if Stan, how spiky Stan was before, now you now you really heard it though, uh-huh. like because I don't think you talk you don't talk quite ag- as aggressively sometimes as Shane and I do about like playing the best deck and stuff like that. But to hear you just be like straight up, I don't really like a co op game, like that kind of stuff is pretty pretty interesting. I mean that's mostly true for me. I will say when I was a kid, I was pretty I was one of those kids who was pretty into like the idea of D and I don't remember like where I got, where I found out about it at first, but I had the red box, like the eighties regular Dungeons and Dragons box. I used to go to the library in Lakewood and like check out the dungeon master guide and the player's handbook and stuff like that. And the gods and demigods books that they had at the library. But I, it was one of those things where like, I played with it a good amount when I was like an early teenager or like, you know, 11, 12 year old with friends and boy scouts and stuff like that. And like, it was always more fun to just like read the manuals to me than it was Mm -hmm. to play the actual games I felt like. But I did have a lot of exposure to the gold box games that I don't know if people remember those from the eighties as well, like pool of radiance and curse of the Azure bonds and all these different like video games that were actually really good and really fun, like early RPC kind of RPGs. 
Yeah, I was I was more aware of those than anything. I loved Pool of Radiance when I was a kid. Like I I played it probably three or four times and it was good. Good. And I, you know, I was very into the idea. I read the books, like I read the Icewind Dale books. I read the Driz Dorden books about the underworld. Like I was into all of that stuff, but just actually playing the game, I sort of like never got around to it all that much. Um, it was, it has been fun lately. We have been playing Pathfinder with some of the members of our Patreon, Lou and Jason and Mickey S Shane. And so that's been fun to actually play a role-playing game for the first time in 25 years for me. Yeah. It's a, it's a very different gaming experience because it's, it's, it's like, it's very improv where it's just like, you know, it's, it's, you have to learn how to play the, the game. The, the game is not the game. Like if, it, if you were playing it for like a dungeon crawling combat thing, like it's, it's, it's not, it's not what it is. It's just about like hanging out and like sort of doing a, like trying to figure out how do I role play as a role playing type person, at least for me, like, what am I doing here? Like, what are we doing together? How do we, how do we, how do we do this? And it's kind of like an interesting learning experience, at least for me, as like my first, yeah, RPG in real life or camera, via camera at least. Um, but yeah, I think I'm the same as you, Dave. We're just like, I, I've, I had friends who had like the, the 2E stuff that I would just sort of like digest. And like, I, I bought like the 3E stuff when it came out, even though I had no one to play with really. Like I didn't, I didn't have a gaming group. I just liked it. I thought it was cool. But like, I think where we're going with this though is like, what's the disc, what is for people who are into it? Like what, why are we bouncing off what we're seeing here a little bit, even though we had an interest at some point and thought like kind of the world is cool. So coming in with basically no affinity for D&D, I will say that the allusions to the game are not lost on me, nor do they really distract me. So I think in a way it kind of weirdly benefits me because some of the stuff that enfranchised D&D players, I think, don't like about the set doesn't necessarily affect me negatively. And yeah, like you're like that. That's not a Terravore, right? Right. right. That's not Zorn. And on the flip side, the stuff that the D and D players love is also kind of lost on me because it's just like any other Magic card or any other new set. So if this was branded, if if the cards were exactly the same, same mechanics, but it didn't have the D and D branding attached to it, I would still probably feel the exact same way about it as I do now. It's like I I don't care one way or the other about the D and D ness of it. I just think that's marketing, baby. Yeah. I mean, I think that they did a good job of like bringing in the flavor of D&D. Like it's 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 strong. Like the flavor is strong. I wasn't quite expecting as much lore in this. You know, there's so yeah. many legendary creatures and so many things that are like really specific references to things that I don't even know about in Forgotten Realms. You know, it's one thing that I guess I forgot about with Dungeons and Dragons is like there are all these stories that sort of add up to a canon, even though it's something that primarily you're supposed to like make the story yourself. But if you think about like Forgotten Realms in particular, which is like the deepest world in D and D in a lot of ways, you know, there's like the Baldur's Gate games, and there's the games that I was talking about from the '80s, and then there's like books from all over the place there, and there's all the individual modules that add up to that, and there's even like the old like. Neverwinter Nights is also Forgotten Realms. And like, so there is a lot of stuff that I'm sure they're trying to balance to be able to get hints of it in. Can I just get a quick elevator pitch? What does Forgotten Realms mean? Does it mean it's like part of a collection of stories? Like, is it like the Star Wars universe within? It's like a plane. Okay. Yeah, it's a specific plane. 
in the world of D and D. So, so yeah. any module or book or campaign that takes place on this plane is considered part of the Forgotten Realms. Yeah, and, and I forget the name of the world itself. I'm trying to look right now. Uh, don't don't send us an email, please. Okay, don't send us an email. I, I, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, like Dave. The weirdly, the metaphor that popped into my head was like I was I was anticipating it being like sort of like a Marvel Cinematic Universe level of lore, where like people would be like, "Oh yeah, I know Captain America," or like, "I know that Hulk is big and green and angry." But like the level of lore here is almost like. I I I grew up I grew up reading the DC Who's Who comics in the mid '80s, where like I know about like this weird villain's like origin story, and I know it's not quite that level of depth of like D and D knowledge, but this is definitely designed for D and D people. Yeah, I mean, who, it's, like know the books and it, know the game. It's high up. I mean the the dragon that Driz Dorden gets one of his scimitars from is in the game. It's like icing mm-hmm. death or whatever whatever its name is. And when you kill it, it produces an equipment mm-hmm. that you can that you can carry. And it's like they went hard. They went mm-hmm. hard into this. And it's a lot more than I was kind of expecting, where I thought it might be much more like I cast magic missile. Yeah. I mean, I just put away, you know, I have a, the only D D book I have from when I was a kid is the Atlas of the Forgotten Realms. It's this book from like nineteen ninety one, I think, that's like all these synopses of and like maps and stuff. And I was flipping through that the other day and I was like, there are so many stories in here. And like, it's like they try to get all of them and put them in the game. So I think that, you know, I've heard like cursory from people who are into D and D or have friends who are into D and D that like their, their friends are reaching out to them to ask them about if they should try magic and all this kind of stuff. And I, you know, I hope that people do. I hope that, you know, it's, this has been a long time coming for Wizards of the Coast to use this IP in magic. And I think they did a, they did a, quality job of it in lots of different ways. It's just like, I didn't realize how much it was going to be. Yeah. I think if it's a successful set, a commercially successful set, we're going to see more adventures in the Forgotten Realms. Well, and there's, there's just, there's other worlds too. Like D and D has so many worlds that they could go to as well. That aren't just the Forgotten Realms is just the most popular one. I think in a lot of ways, but they have other places, especially from back in, if they go back in the nineties, there was four or five different kind of planes that people were really popular with. Yeah. One of those like Margaret, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman books that like, Dra- you know, was that Dragonlance? No, oh, that was Dragonlance. Yeah. yeah. That's a those different world. That's oh, a yeah, totally different, different, different world, man. Yeah. And so there, that would, I would imagine that might be the next one that they would do. But uh, at any rate, so we spent a long time talking about this other, just to say like, we see you, D&D and people, I hope you're excited about it. But like Stan said, I feel like it's the mechanics and like the cards themselves that actually I think are making us all kind of scratch our heads a little bit. You know, I think in the past when we've said like, hey, these these aren't good enough, you know, we've been wrong occasionally about like whether there was really powerful cards in the sets or not. But it was tough looking through this spoiler, not going to lie to figure out like what the hook was or what we can really bring to people for the audience for this show in particular. Mm-hmm. Well, how about we start just by talking about some of the mechanics in the set? Yep. Cause there, there's 500 of them and we should probably list them all off. Yep, exactly. So what's the first one? I think the big one that we need to talk about that's groundbreaking and how it actually impacts the game design. Sure. Yeah. Our dungeons and the venture mechanic. Yeah. So the three dungeons. There's three dungeons that you cannot find on Scryfall. You have to, <laughs> you have to like Google them. Um, and what's interesting about these 
three dungeon cards in and of themselves is that they exist outside of the game. You always have access to them. They don't take up sideboard slots, and they're kind of just free. So if you ever play a card that lets you venture into the dungeon, and we might talk about some venture cards today, you can decide which of those dungeons you want to venture into and just do it. And it doesn't actually take up any slots or or you know other resources in your 75. Just takes up deck box space. So if you've got a lot of tokens, you double sleeve, mm-hmm. you might run out of room. Yeah. And it's it's interesting like they're sort of like little mazes that you move through by activating this by playing cards with this ability venture into the dungeon over and over again so it's this kind of like you know there's all kinds of things sometimes it's tacked on a creature sometimes ventures uh tacked onto a spell but what you do is you get a little bonus each step of the dungeon you go through and then when you complete a dungeon there's some kind of bigger payoff at the end but there's also cards that pay you off if you have completed a dungeon they let you do other things or each time you complete a dungeon they have a bonus or or whatever um this mechanic to me is like really mind-bending and it's certainly something that feels like it's kind of like grafted onto the side of magic so um, you know, it does feel like crawling through a dungeon in Dungeons and Dragons, but like, uh, I, I'm, I'm worried a little bit in the sense that like, if one of these turns out to be good, we're just going to see this one dungeon forever and ever and ever. Well, I mean, the real thing though is, and that's the kind of, it's right now it's like the, a perfect definition or, or representation rather of a parasitic mechanic or dungeons well, dungeons exist now for eternity, right? But the venture into the dungeon cards are only here, so the cards will have to be good enough to synergize with a dungeon that's also good enough, or perhaps at least the dungeon's adequate enough to make the payoff of the venture worth it. Like for the if you completed a dungeon, X happens, like you said, Dave, on some of these cards. But it's it's just it's it's you can compare it to let's say just like energy. Like where energy, but energy payoffs didn't exist outside the deck. Mm-hmm. The dungeon payoff exists outside the deck. And so uh, the energy payoffs were part of your deck as well. And so they had to like synergize with things. So all these venture into the dungeon cards have to do is be good enough on their own to see play and then probably have to have a dungeon that's worth venturing through. But it's kind of just gravy at that point, right? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like the enablers have to be good enough, and then you can get those gravy for free. Whereas exactly. the energy, yeah. where you had both enablers and payoffs for the energy deck in your seventy-five. Yeah, but it was it was it. it I think it's going to play fairly differently because these dungeons are not short. Like you can't just breeze through a dungeon. Like some of them are for like four rooms, yeah. something like that. Five rooms. What's well, the total of one, two, three, four? Do you have to go? Out, do you have to go out the last room? No. Or is the, okay, so the last room is the exit. So one, two, three, four is our shortest one. One. No, two, three, three is the four. shortest one. Tomb of Annihilation. You can. Oh yeah, Tomb of Annihilation because it's a real bad. It's a. It's very hurtful to go the short path. I have an idea. Of course. Let's read off these dungeons. Oh man, there's so many rooms though. I know. I, Give, I, what's the what's the flavor on them, Stan? Like what's what's the what happens? I don't. No, the flavor. Well, he, mean, he means like, what's the big payoff for each of them? Sure. All right. Maybe. So we have Lost Mine of Thandelver. Um, and the payoff there is you just draw a card. And that one seems pretty interesting because you can use it to make tokens. You could creature token, one, one creature tokens. You can make treasures, gain and drain your opponent, 
give a creature's minus four, minus zero, put one counters on your opponent. So you get some value throughout that dungeon. Tomb of Annihilation, that's the one that's really asking you for something. Because the payoff there is to create a legendary 4-4 black god whore creature token with death touch. But along the way, you're losing life. You're discarding cards. You're sacrificing creatures, artifacts, or lands. You're ubaletting yourself. Is that how that's pronounced? Ubalet? (laughs) Sounds right. Yeah. Obliet. And then uh, the hardest dungeon, I think this is the one for players level 15 and up, is Dungeon of the Mad Mage with the most rooms. And the payoff there is called Mad Wizard's Lair, where you draw three cards and reveal them, and you may cast one of them without paying its mana cost. Yeah, and like the whole thing along the way is like, it's like you're doing a lot of scrying, you're sort of setting up your draws and things like that, right? Right, right. Scrying, making treasure tokens, preventing creatures from attacking, making 1-1 skeleton tokens, etc. So it's kind of like, that's more like the control deck one, right? Where it's sort of like the payoff is, you're sort of like setting up blockers, gaining some life, setting mm-hmm. up some draws. Yeah, that's a good way to put look at it. Yeah, so fortunately, I haven't seen any cards that felt like they made it easy enough for you to go through a dungeon where I feel like I'm going to see these in modern or historic, with one exception. Yeah. The one card that piqued my interest today was Acerarak, which is two generic and a black for a legendary creature, Zombie Wizard. It's a 5-5, and it says, when Acerarak enters the battlefield, if you have not completed the Dungeon Tomb of Annihilation, return Acerarak to its owner's hand and venture into the dungeon. Whenever Acerarak attacks for each opponent, you create a 2-2 black zombie creature token, unless that player sacrifices a creature. Here's why this one is interesting to me. Yeah, why? why? It's one card you just use over and over again to go through dungeons that are not Tomb of Annihilation. So if you're in some kind of control some kind of control list and you want to just go through a dungeon and have a card and get value off of it and just play this for three mana over and over and over again, this is a reusable card that lets you do that. Now, is there a way to break it so you go infinite a single turn outside of EDH where you can do that with Alluren, you know? Um, Then I, I don't really, I haven't seen that yet, but I do think that this is kind of like, if there's a dungeon control list, this might be the thing that sort of makes that happen. Here's my question. What makes this, in your mind, different than the Green Planeswalker that costs four up front, but then you just plus one every turn to venture into the dungeon? Uh, that the payoff here is that if you want it to become a 5-5 five, five eventually, you can make it a 5-5 five, five threat. Mm-hmm. So it's a little more versatile to me than the Planeswalker, although the Planeswalker is like fine too, I guess, but that, that's even like the most narrow Planeswalker I've ever seen <laughs> printed, where it's just like... It's it's just this mechanic, you know. But so that was the only thing I thought here. But kind of dungeons, I think we're mostly a pass. We're not going to talk about any ones that say venture on them from here. Why don't we go on to just like keep keep this moving? Next theme: rolling dice. Oh dear. Cards with a before X or when you do X clause, you roll a D twenty. Very very D and D ish, right? Hmm. Now, can you roll any like twenty sided spin down, or does it have to be a different type of D twenty? It depends on how many arguments you want to get in with <laughs> yes. the pedantic gamers at your LGS. Because, you know, there's a whole lot of different opinions about this, mm-hmm. about what, what makes sense, what doesn't. A spin down is not properly randomized, quote unquote, for a dice, right? But at the same time, it's like if everybody's using the same type of thing, it's not a big deal. Just watch how your opponents roll. I also read some people who played Hero Clicks 
for years, apparently, who said that that there was a controversy similar to this in their community, and mostly they found that it didn't matter once they did studies. <laughs> weird. Uh, I think the biggest thing to me is, like, I feel like they did this in a really weird way. I feel like there's too many cards that have the D20 mechanic, and... So many. And I think that the thing that's really weird about it is, like, they set this up where you get one effect from from one to nine, so you know, 45% of the time you get one effect and then you get another effect from 10 to 19. So 50% of the time you get this other effect. And then for a 20, you get something that's like really pretty good or moderately better. And so it's, it's almost like the mechanic didn't quite like, it's like they, they played it and then they said, we got to minimize the variance on this. So what are we going to do? We're just going to throw 5% bonus on top of everything. So you have to roll a D20 to like occasionally get this 5% bonus. That's like meaningless. So yeah. it's, it's, it's going to be a lot of work for not a lot of fun. That's what I, that's a great way to put it. That's kind of what I think too. Yeah. It's just games. It's gonna be a lot of tediousness and like, yeah, it's like, it's like you said, I think it's, they're pretty flat. I, you can see the floor and the ceiling of these cards and they're not drastically different. And it's going to be one of those things where you're like, well, I'm glad arena is doing this for me. <laughs> sort of just spits the number out. I don't have to like chase some die 20 across the table. You know, I think, you know, pre-release is going to be madness of people just sort of rolling stuff around. And, uh, I, I, yeah, I just wish that it was maybe like three or four buckets of like four or five numbers. Right. Or like the, the main effect is like four to 16. And then it's just like, you know, the, the higher up stuff is just a little bit better, but I don't really like variants, and I think that they I think they get the feeling that magic players don't love variants and they don't want to build it into the game too much, and so it ended up just feeling kind of flat. Well, there's tons of variants in magic already. It's a deck of cards. And well, I think yeah. that's the main the main thing is that and I and I do the, think the too effect. that some of them felt pretty flavorful, but then on a lot of them it's kind of like, cool, this ogre it's like because they were trying to do like the as fan thing where they're like in a limited environment, we want people to feel the core set mechanics you end up with all these cards that are just like, why does this card exist? Which is like, fine, they're not for us, I guess, but whatever. So the only card that I thought was interesting, particularly because of the dice mechanic, was Delina Wild Mage. And so I'll read this really quickly. It's three generic and a red, legendary creature, El Shaman. Delina Wild Mage attacks. Choose target creature you control, then roll a d20. From 1 to 14, you create a tapped and attacking token that's a copy of that creature, except it's not legendary and it has exiled this creature at the end of combat. From 15 to 20, you create one of those tokens and you may roll again. I feel like with some of the dice re-rollers, there might be a way to really make just like an incredible amount of tokens really quickly with with this and um that might be a little bit of like splinter twin vibes i mean it's not it won't be deterministic but because there'll be some chance that you fail but you might be able to get so many dice re-rollers out as part of some kind of deck that you you know you're gonna get it like 70 percent of the time you're gonna be able to attack with enough tokens to kill somebody early in the game i don't know but it was kind of an interesting this one kind of stood out to me as being something that was really powerful with the dice mechanic yeah i mean i was looking at two cards that they must have checked their archives for dice rolling like triggers, like things that triggered dice rolls, because like Brazen Dwarf is one in a red for a creature dwarf shaman, and whenever you roll one or more dice, it deals one damage to each opponent. Like if you had some way to just sort of like, I'm going to roll 20 times somehow, like I'm just going to figure out some way to trigger a reroll, then uh, Brazen Dwarf is going to finish off my opponent. 
or something like Feywell Trickster, two in a blue that makes a, a one one blue fairy dragon creature token with flying. So that's like a splinter twin thing, right? Where it's like, if I had some way to just roll infinite number of dice, I can make infinite number of blue fairy dragons or something like that. Right. But they must not be because Brazen Dwarf would be easy to break. We'll see, I guess. Brazen Dwarf is cheap, at least. It's two mana, right? For Yeah, that's like a it's like the cycling deck payoff. It's the die rolling deck payoff. Kind of, right? So we, we just had... It wasn't a proper limited theme, but a handful of cards in MH2 that involved coin flipping. Mm-hmm. How would you feel if all of these roll a d20 cards were coin flip cards instead? I would also hate it. Yeah, yeah I would also not like it. Yeah. More or less? Honestly, I'd probably like it even less if it was flips, because the die roll at least is, I feel like it's easier to roll a die onto a table than just to like flip a coin onto a table or onto your hand or something. Good point. I can't remember who made this point, but one of the strongest points I've heard in defense of the D20, this may have, like, a friend of mine may have said this at the commander table, but something that the D20 contributes to in games of D&D, or so I'm told, are these very memorable moments when you have a critical role and things go great. Yeah, that's what I'd love to have. And like, but like, I feel like the cards aren't conducive to that. That's kind of like my major issue, right? It's like, even if I rolled a 20, it's like, I'm gonna feel like I'm not gonna like, have something amazing happen. Well, what, what, how amazing do you want it to be? Like, do you want roll a D20 and win the game? No, I mean, that's why I think it's not really, doesn't really fit the game of magic, right? It's like, if you want a 20 to be memorable and do something incredible and like literally win you a session, like where you're like, I would be dead if I didn't get this amazing roll. Or I've had that happen in Gloomhaven a few times where it's like, I'm with my buddy, and it's like the last, you know, the last swing on the boss of like this certain campaign. And it's like, oh, I, I, I pulled the, the, the double damage. I did like, you know, 17. Oh, he's dead. Oh, my God, we did it. And like that just can't happen in magic because it's like too swingy. Mm-hmm. But it does happen in magic all the time. It's just called a top deck is what it is. Like that's sure, that's sure. what a critical that's what a critical role is in Dungeons and Dragons. It's a top right, deck it already, in magic. It already exists. We don't need dice to recreate it. Yeah, and I'm I'm not too harsh on that. I just think that it got like it just got flattened. It feels like they got flattened out a little bit too much to me in some ways. Like they don't do enough different things, I guess. Like if you want a really memorable event, just have it do something totally totally different that you weren't expecting. But yeah, I, I don't feel like we're going to see a lot of these, but we might see a couple get through. Okay, uh, Creature Lands. Obviously not a D&D theme, but I thought <laughs> that these were pretty interesting land designs, personally. Yeah. You know, they come in sort of like tap lands. They, if they're your first or second, or sorry, not tap lands, fast lands. If they're your first or second land that you play, they get to come in untapped. And they're all monocolored. There's, there's a whole cycle of them. Uh, they produce a single color color mana, and they all turn into creatures of reasonable sizes. Um, they're yeah. all kind of like pretty big creatures. You know, they're kind of four mana to activate, five mana to activate. I think the blue one is seven mana to activate. Six. Um, six mana to activate. Yeah, these, these aren't these aren't like your treetop villages. Like they're not like an efficient cheap beater to yeah. activate. Yeah, but I do think that there's two pretty good ones. One is uh, the Den of the Bugbear. Is the red one. And so what that one that says is uh, if you pay three generic and a red until end of turn, Den of the Bugbear becomes a 3-2 red goblin creature with whenever this creature attacks, create a 1-1 red goblin creature token that's tapped and attacking. It's still a land. I mean, that's cool. It makes two creatures. It's also a goblin, so it has some tribal synergy stuff that I think could be good for certain decks, depending on where you want to go with that. That one felt like kind of a slam dunk for me. As like I feel like people are going to be keeping an eye on this to play for sure, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's in historic or in modern. 
And then the green one was just spoiled today. Uh, it looks like it's called Layer of the Hydra, potentially. And it is X green. Layer of the Hydra becomes an XX green Hydra creature until end of turn. It's still a land. So it scales. Yeah, I mean, that that's that's killer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it scales pretty slowly, but at least it scales. Like So it's uh, that's advantageous where it can... You know, if you're making a lot of green mana, and there are decks that can make a lot of green mana, then that's certainly a perfectly good threat, potentially. But I like these cards a lot. I, I think that they could be good. You know, they're not... Um, they don't provide mana fixing, so I think there's yeah. a reasonable chance that these end up in in monocolor decks of certain persuasions. But you know, I, I think that there's there's a lot of power here, if, especially if you think about some of the decks that were running like um, Faceless Haven, for example, where in Historic, where you're like, well, it's kind of free for me in Mono Blue Tempo. You know, the deck that used to exist that was Mono Blue Tempo before the archives yeah, came some, out some red decks some white decks yeah where you you it's free to do that and then you just run these lands that don't produce uh your color of mana they just produce colorless these ones kind of get around that where they do produce your color of mana and there's still creatures that are probably pretty good so i think there's a good chance they're good my my issue here is that there's there's a bigger tension than typical between like the number you want to run to have one early and then top decking one even the mid game or late game, and then having it come into play tapped because, like a fast land, can be your third land, and still be untapped. Yeah, these, it's uh, it it can't it cannot be your third land like you mentioned, and I think that that's a bigger tension, especially in in you know a, a monocolored deck or like you know many many decks that are more controlling want to run a few different colors so it's like when am i going to have the time to have this come into play tapped blue land when i'm like a three color <laughs> control deck i just i don't yeah. know i don't know well that's why i, I think want- that the the aggressive ones are probably the ones that are more likely I agree. to get played just because you know if you 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 don't get as wrecked by bringing in a, a comes into play tapped land uh, later when you're an aggressive deck because your curve is so low so sometimes sure. you might be okay with getting a creature it's going to have summoning sickness anyway so if you if you play it with the intent of using it aggressively and it comes in tap, it's not a big deal a lot of times. But I kind of think that you can play these in any monocolor deck in lower power formats, mm-hmm. like in, in historic, prob- almost certainly standard, but historic and maybe pioneer. I think if you're in a monocolor deck, there's no reason not to play these. Yeah, I think that some of them have to be. I think again, like like Shane was saying, in a control deck, it's sometimes harder to want this, or a mid maybe a mid rangey deck, it's okay later to have that comes into play tapped maybe you only can only play a couple like he said i think it does depend on your deck style if you can play them but um especially the really expensive one like the blue one is kind of like okay uh, i guess we are going to be a control deck that's just okay with having it comes into play tapped land i mean you know we had celestial colonnade forever in modern and it was good enough as a as a finisher decks like that tend to just have shark typhoon these (laughs) days so i don't (laughs) know how good a, a creature land will be there but I could see running it as a two of even in a deck like that, one of the blue ones or, or the white ones. All right, let's let's get through these classes. Um, I think these are very cool. I think the classes are really cool. These are cool. I think these are the best designs, the best D and D inspired designs in the set. We want to talk about them, Dave. You talk about them. Then. Yeah, you're, you're you're feeling high on them. Go, let's talk about these. So these are enchantments that are sort of like give you a class in a weird way (laughs) as the player so you get to uh you know they're just called barbarian class or paladin class or bard class and it's just an enchantment subtype class and it's kind of like a little bit like a saga crossed with the old level up mechanic from rise of the eldrazi 
where basically when it comes into play, you get a thing from from it, and then you can pump some mana in it to move to level two and to level three. And they do a whole bunch of different things. And there's a lot of them in this set. You know, there's fighter and bard and monk and paladin and all these different things, all the different classes you can be in D&D. I think one important distinction with these compared to sagas is that as you level up, you retain previous abilities too. Yeah, you gain abilities with these. These aren't like, they do have some triggers occasionally, but they, right. they also don't get sacrificed at the end when you come to level three or something. They're just kind of there all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a couple of really notable ones. So the one that stood out to me was Bard Class, which is red and green. And it says, legendary creatures you control enter the battlefield with an additional plus one, plus one counter on them. That's level one. Level two is red, green to get it. And it says, legendary spells you cast cost red, green less to cast. This effect reduces only the amount of colored mana you pay. And then finally, it's three generic red, green for level three. Whenever you cast a legendary spell, exile the top two cards of your library. You may play them this turn. Uh, there's a whole bunch of legends that just cost a single red or a single green or red and green by themselves that you can, I there I think that there's enough here where you can chain together a deck that just casts most of its spells for free and then potentially has some kind of payoff based off of that. And, um, you know, even if you get to the point where you get up to level three and you start to draw extra cards and play them as a result of that, I think that there's a lot of different power in, in this one just because of the mana reduction. But... I don't know what you all think about it. Excited to find out. I, I would give an honorable mention to one other class. I think the cleric class might be interesting in Historic because it's one mana to cast originally, and its baseline mode is that if you would gain life, you'd gain that much life plus one instead. Mm-hmm. And I think in you know the Angels decks that already occasionally play Authority of the Consoles, or at least will play it post-board, having that with additional upside that might be a mana sink later on could be good because the the upside later on is at level two, whenever you gain life, you put a counter, a 1-1 one, one counter on target creature you control. And then when it becomes level three, you can return target creature from your graveyard to the battlefield and gain life equal to its toughness. So I think you can save, it, it basically it helps you grind later in the game or earlier in the game, it can kind of help expedite your plan as well while also supporting some of those life gain synergies too. Yeah, I think this one's pretty good actually. I'm glad you added it in there. Yeah, I I always think enchantments that are trying to like that are support enchantments for you are frequently hard to use because you have to figure out how you're going to fit them into your strategy, right? And like when you're going to have the time to cast them or level them up. And I feel like a lot of the enchantments that I actually see play are enchantments that are are hindering your opponents in sort of hamstringy ways like whether it's a blood moon or alpine moon or rest in peace or something like that right Mm -hmm. and so i i i am more than happy to see something like this do something cool uh and we'll have to wait and see but i I mean i think that they're balanced i think that none of them is screaming busted to me besides maybe like you said davis bard class one like if you combine it with like a play creatures off the top of your deck style effect type thing where it's like uh, some Nissa planeswalker or something like that or, or vivian reed rather uh play play creatures on top of your deck and then you have legendary spells really cheap and you sort of just chaining that together i think it's something that we could feasibly see play in like a, a pioneer or, or historic environment mm-hmm. the last one i really liked is paladin class just because it's entry for a single white is a tax effect on your opponents where they can't cast spells on your turn 
unless they pay extra. I think that's a nice kind of taxing effect that a lot of decks would be annoyed with. Might not be a main deck card, but it does do some stuff where you know it does an anthem for its level two that costs three mana, and then for five mana for level three, you get whenever you attack until end of turn, target attacking creature gets plus one plus one for each other attacking creature and gains double strike. Imagine throwing that on like an Archon of Emeria or something like that in those kind of white taxes decks where you have a flyer, plus all of a sudden you're attacking with four things, and all of a sudden it's swinging for like you know eight damage, ten damage, something like that. Um, I think these are cool designs i think they're interesting and then the last mechanic that we had to talk about was pack tactics mm-hmm. pack tactics i think is actually good and there's a number of cards that i think could actually do this but basically it's like battalion i don't know if you guys remember battalion where it was like if you attack with three creatures together it gets a trigger this is if you attack with creatures whose total power equals six or more something happens there's a bunch of good cards that go with that including the first card that I would put on that list to note is Werewolf Pack Leader, yeah. which is green, green for a 3-3. It is a human werewolf, and it says uh, its pack tactics trigger is that it draws a card, which I think is pretty strong. And then it also has the activated ability of three generic and a green. Until end of turn, Werewolf Pack Leader has base power and toughness 5-3, gains trample, and is not a human. It's pretty good for a two-drop. I think. Yeah, well, so you're basically, you're just paying four there to give it plus two plus zero, right? And, and trample, and plus trample. two plus zero on trample. Yeah. yeah. So, But then you only need one other attacking creature to trigger tactics. Exactly. And so it's a little mana sink that occasionally sides you into drawing a card. I mean, this is a type of card where, like, if Gruul was still a thing in, in Historic, I would be like, Shane, are we trying this in Gruul? Because it's a great way to draw cards. It might be better than than Galia, for example, or something like that, because more consistent and things like that. But Gruul is a thing in Historic. Is it still? It is, yeah. I don't know, it's probably a thing. That's good. As far as I know, the only things that exist in Historic right now are Is It Phoenix and Demir Control. And, no, and Gruul is that's good. It. Play Gruul. I have another pack tactics card that okay. I think is potentially okay, but probably not. And it's Minion of the Mighty, single red kobold with menace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it has pack tactics, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's payoff is you may put a dragon creature card from your hand onto the battlefield tapped and attacking. It's a, it's an O one. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's either a bad combo with like a double infuriate <laughs> draw, uh, but it does, it, you know, it does cheat dragons into play, but the dragon has to be in your hand, which I don't like. Well, I think it's probably bad. It, 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 what's interesting about this card is I think it incentivizes you to play multiple dragons. And then what ends up happening is they just kind of snowball because this by itself, unless you're putting pump spells into your deck, this is never going to help trigger the pack tac- tactics. It's kind of like a signal pest where you have to attack yeah. to get a thing out of it. But once you have maybe one or two dragons out there, they just sort of start to beget more dragons with each attack step. It's, it's likely not a thing. But I did want to point it out. I mean, I think it's a powerful effect. We'll see if someone figures out a way to do it. I got to say, what's impressive about this episode so far for me is how much time we've managed to spend not talking about cards, which I think maybe points to how uh, uninspired we are with this set. So maybe oh, I think it's, it's, it's table setting. Table setting, Stan. It is table setting. That's for sure. And we've got about 30 minutes to talk about cards as a result of that. So it's got to be just the bangers. Yeah, maybe a little less. I, I have something prepared for the end of the episode. But Oh, that's true. Oh. What, what if we start with a quick little round robin of what we think is currently the best card we've seen? Oh, man. Okay. 
Other than the ones okay. we've talked about already, so we'll just set those aside. Because I, I think there's a chance that that Werewolf Pack Leader is one of the best cards in the set. Okay. Wow. But, I mean, that's unfortunate, but I think it might be. I think there's a chance Bard Class is one of the best cards in the set. I think there's a chance that Hydra's Nest is, or whatever, Layer of the Hydra or whatever, is the best, one of the best cards in the set. But anyway. May I present for your consideration? Treasure Vault. Oh, yeah. I left that off my list by accident. Yes. Yeah. So this is a rare land. It is an artifact land. It enters untapped, taps for colorless, but it has this added ability, XX tap, sack treasure vault, create X treasure tokens. Now, why would this be one of the best cards in the set? Because I think untapped artifact lands are good. And they're good specifically in modern we're talking about here. It's not, this is not a thing in historic or pioneer, really. I I think this is probably going to be a modern thing, uh, unless you can get it back out of the yard with Emery's work. Might get a little interesting, but I was doing the math where you need to basically spend four mana to make this worth an extra artifact. Because otherwise, if you spend two, you make a treasure token, you have the same number of artifacts on the board. But the fact that we have an untapped artifact land and artifact lands in general used to be sort of this line that we were really afraid to cross. They're banned in modern, of course, because of how effective they are in affinity style decks. We got some new affinity cards in general as well. You can't get this with Saga, or can you? No. No, because it has to have a mana value of either specifically zero gotcha, gotcha. or one. So right. no, you can't. Right. So although you know maybe it doesn't have some obvious synergies right now, I just think having an untapped artifact land is really good that you can then mana sync to make extra artifacts from. And the fact that it taps for colorless, I don't actually even think is that big. Imagine this on turn one or two with an Urza Saga on turn one or two, where you can like make huge constructs with just your lands out there early. Yeah, on. and then cast Thought Monitor. You know, this is like a soul ring for Thought Monitor. So like that's a whole thing too. I, I think you were right that that might be one of the best cards in the set, but it's for like a really specific reason, and it's extremely powerful mm-hmm. in yeah. modern that this card exists. I mean, it's the only untapped artifact land besides Darksteel Citadel. Mm-hmm. Even Power Depot comes into play tapped. Yeah, Shane, what do you have as your your pick? Is what might be one of the okay? I was I was looking through the <laughs> looking through the cards. I still think not in modern because of prismatic ending. I still think Portable Hole is really good. I still think Portable Hole is quite good. Uh, it reads, it's a single white mana artifact. When an ETBs, you exile, target non-land permanent, an opponent controls with mana value two or less until Portable Hole leaves the battlefield. It's, of course, tempting to compare it to Prismatic Ending now, but uh, remember, that's only in Modern, and you can't hit a two-drop for one mana with Prismatic Ending. Yeah, and here's the, bi- the big thing, too, is that you can't kill Prismatic Ending. Mm-hmm. So portable hole someone can disenchant it and there's a lot of disenchant oh yeah effects right now around right now that's an issue that's an issue is like the from when this got spoiled early and it's like in a very early spoiler i was very very high on this car like i was saying like this is going to be something that blue white control is playing in modern and i think it's going to be better for i i think i was on record saying this is gonna be more important for azorius control than counterspell <laughs> is and I'm, I, if, if, if we didn't have Modern Horizons do what it did and give us things like Prismatic Ending and then also give us an environment in which Disenchant and Shatterstorm and all those kind of effects are everywhere, uh, that does 
put a bit of a wrench in my my machine of loving portable hole. <laughs> my engine of portable hole loving. A fly in my portable hole ointment. Well, right, but you're talking about modern. We play other formats, and I think portable yeah, I think, hole I think, could I think, be a staple yeah, there. So, yeah, I think I so really what I think is that this is still going to see see a ton of play in historic and pioneer. I think that I think there's I think it has a chance for modern, but I think that ending is so good that it's not going to you know it's it's going to overshadow portable hole. But I think portable hole is going to see tons of play in our other formats. I don't know. I think it's great. I great love card. it. I love it. All right. So I have to that, pick what I think the I'm best reaching. card that's left is, and I am I'm going to say. Demi Lich, wow. I guess, is the card that I think might be. Wow, really? I just feel it, like... It looks like it should be great, right? That's the thing. I'm going to fall for it. I'm going to be the person who's like, it feels like this should be a great Spells Matter payoff somewhere. So Demi Lich is blue, yeah. blue, blue, blue. Skeleton Wizard. The spell costs blue less to cast for each instant Skeleton sorcery. Wizard. Yeah, nice. <laughs> ooh, 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 ooh. In case you ever wondered what a Lich was, just tell people, it's a Skeleton Wizard. It costs one blue less for each instant sorcery you've cast this turn. Mm-hmm. And then whenever Demi Lich attacks, exile up to one target instant or sorcery from your graveyard, copy it. You may cast the copy. It's a 4-3, and it also says you may cast Demi Lich from your graveyard by exiling four instants and or sorceries from your graveyard in addition to paying its other costs. So, I mean, the real deal here is that if you can play, f- you know, you can bring it out early. It's also a Thought Scour payoff, of course. And then you can also... Um, you know, cast four instants or sorceries and bring it back with the same thing because you will reduce its cost to zero and then have four instants or sorceries in your graveyard and you just kind of go for it. But um, it doesn't have evasion, which I think is the thing that most people look at when they look at this. They go, does it fly? No, it doesn't fly. It doesn't have trample. It doesn't have menace. It doesn't have anything. Uh, so I could see that being a problem with this card, but I just feel like there's a lot of text here and a lot of power. Yeah, you would think that this this skull head hovers at least but maybe just rolls rolls around the floor yeah yeah doesn't even have leaping i mean lich is such a like iconic creature type for D D too that that's kind of setting off some alarm bells for me so i don't know where this goes but i still feel like power level wise it might be it might be the best Casting four instants and sorceries in a single turn is easy. I, I think getting this for free or cheap is is really easy. I, you can turn to this in modern with Manamorphose, right? Manamorphose, Manamorphose, Lich. Well, you yes, yeah, you, you, yeah. You, you just, just have cast to make blue, blue with the second one. Yeah, but here yeah. here's the thing though. I think I'd still rather have Storming Entity. Like Storming Entity sets up your next two draws. Right. It you know it flies. Right. It has prowess itself. Yeah. Stor- Storming Entity doesn't have recursion though and i wonder if what this is is just kind of like this random one or two of that you can maybe get through the late game in controlling or mid-rangey games where they have answers for all of your creatures and this is just a recursive threat that now they need graveyard hate for as well yeah it's i think it has potential it reads like a card that should do something it's a mythic it's a lich like why not Let's see what the pre-order is on this. Well, you go ahead. I'm gonna I'm gonna check back with you about that in a minute. It's twenty three dollars, Dave. Twenty three dollars. Okay. Can we talk about another uh, flying flaming skull that actually does fly? Yes. And a little bit on the nose, it's flame skull. <laughs> uh, one one red red for a flying creature skeleton cannot block, 
Uh, it has rejuvenation, which I think is like one of those made up fake words. Of, yeah, fake. We didn't D&D talk about keywords. that flavor in these these D and D keywords. I think those are fun. For the record, I think that they capture it's, the it's not unfun. capture some of it a lot, but it, it is funny to see all these ability words that are just like one offs in the in the set. But anyway, yeah. So apparently, this this creature probably has some kind of rejuvenation ability in D and D world. When Flame Skull dies, you exile it, and if you do, you exile the top card of your library. Until the end of your next turn, that's that's key. I think that's very cool. Till the end of your next turn, you may play one of those cards. Okay, so what this means is, in effect, is you will have an exiled Flame Skull and an exiled other card from the top of your library. And then until the end of your next turn, you can play one of those cards. If you cast Flame Skull, you can't play other... They're very explicit about this. <laughs> if you cast Flame Skull this way, you can't play the other card and vice versa. Yeah. It is a 3-1... Uh, so that's, I mean, that's, that's a thing. It's just going to keep coming back if you want, if you want to keep paying for it, it can keep coming back from exile. You get until your end of your next turn to do so. Uh, why not? Why not have a flame skull? I think this card is cool too. I'm glad to see that you, you kind of thought that this was a power level too, because it felt to me like I hadn't heard anybody talk about this yet. And I was like, it seems good. Kind of like it does. You can cocoa into it, Dave. Yeah. I don't know why. I mean, many other creatures can as well. But you can Coco into it. I mean, it kind of casts light up the stage when it dies, because you can play yeah. a land off of it. I mean, you only get to play one of the cards, of course, but... That's the issue. Yeah. That's the... It's like you. It's not like you can play one of those cards this turn. Do you know what I mean? It's like you only can get one of the two ever. Right. Flame Skull leads to the hard choices, Stan. Yeah, <laughs> and if you play that land, then you don't get to play the Flame Skull. Right. Which I think if you get the land, you probably would rather play flame skull so you have to you have to do some weird sequencing with this as well where you don't cast anything on your first main phase see what happens and then if it survives maybe you recast it you don't recast it but maybe if it survives then you can cast other stuff or if it dies you just recast it and make your opponent exactly keep yeah, spending that, cards on it totally what i think too i mean it, it gives you a lot of options it feels like maybe this options does go good. in your coco uh my Jund Skelemental deck with yeah, no Luris. Jund them out, baby. Not better than Luris, though. Yeah, that's always going to be tough right now. Ah, Luris, Luris, Luris. That, and, and note that that card is like $17 pre-order. So this is the... Flame Skullers, too? Interesting. Yeah, this is what we're digging into for <laughs> our, our pricing on this set, for constructed purposes, at least. Interesting. Okay, so Stan, you want to go next on a card you want to talk about? Sure, yeah. So, Dave, this is actually on your list of cards, but I'm going to call it out because it's something I would cast, which is the Circle of Dreams Druid. Mm. GGG for an Elf Druid 2-1 that has tap, add green for each creature you control. So it's kind of like... 2-1. It is a 2-1, yeah. So it's like a slightly worse Elvish Archdruid because it doesn't also pump your board and it's only got one toughness. That's a lot worse. That is worse, but it produces so much mana that I think it makes it worth it for just rule of eight reasons. Because Elvish Archdruid is so often one of the best cards in your deck and it's not entirely because of the Lord effect. It's because you have so much to do with a ton of mana. I see. Oh, but are you, are you, would you play, like you don't, what, what are the other three drops in Elves? That like see play over over something else. I mean, do you mean like like, like what, what are you playing format? in the three spot? Well, well, even in historic elves, you're not playing like a pile of three drops, are you? You don't play a lot of three drops, but like sometimes you have Marwyn the Nurturer. Um, 
God. So I guess I'm, what I guess what I'm getting at, Stan, is like this is. I mean, rule of eight doesn't always mean you want to play eight, right? Right. We're playing six. Yeah. Maybe maybe you're playing six, but my point is that what it does is that it produces so much mana that it makes it easier to maybe like cast your crater hoof earlier or uh, pay the seven mana ability on your elvish war master or the six mana ability on your allosaur shepherd that having more tools to make all that mana i think is really important and potentially just worth the extra slots on its own correct yeah like i i think it might just be better than marwin the nurture for example right which you're running sometimes in a couple of one one two of kind of range right exactly yeah 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 i mean the card just stood out to me as just being super super powerful and the other thing to keep in mind is like this opens this effect up to decks that are not all elves Correct. And so if you're generating tokens, you know, if you're doing a deck with, I don't know, I mean, you know, I just think about a card like Colony Garden suddenly where it's like, it's a, you play a land and you get a creature and then later on you get to play Elf Druid and you have your plant token out there. Like it lets you do other stuff with this that maybe opens up that big mana, archi- that t- style of big mana archetype outside of elves specifically, but also redundant with elves. Dave, are you up? I guess I'm up. I, I have more of a curveball, I think, because this is a card that just seems powerful, but I don't know what you would do with it. And that card is Mr. Oswald Fiddlebender. Oh, this card's good. I don't know who, what particular property Oswald is from. Uh, he looks like he likes an airship, from what I can see here. Um, and what Oswald is is a generic and a white for a 2-2 for a legendary creature gnome artificer. That has magical tinkering. You pay white and tap it, sacrifice an artifact to search your library for an artifact card with mana value equal to one plus the sacrificed artifact's mana value. Put it onto the battlefield and shuffle. Activate as a sorcery. So it is a birthing pod kind of effect for artifacts, uh, which, you know, at one point in time we called those tinkers. But um, it's interesting to see this this type of effect. It seems really powerful to me. I'm sure there's some artifact change that you can put together that gets you a benefit from sacrificing the artifact and also from an artifact coming into play. Um, just seems good. Yeah, I mean, even as something as simple as like a chromatic effect, those draw a card when they go into the graveyard. There's all sorts of annoying. I mean, we 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 know from history now of playing this game. Yeah that nothing about cheap artifact synergies can surprise us. You know what I mean? There's always something that someone's going to cook up that's going to do something interesting. And I think Oswald has a chance to be a part of that, uh, especially in maybe the our lower-powered formats that we cover. Yeah, that don't always already have access to certain other effects or just you know need some redundancy in those kind of artifact synergies, potentially. Yeah, I mean, what's good about this is it's cheap, Right, like it's it's only a one mana, plus a tap, of course, like uh, ability, uh, and it just can it can it can stick around and do some stuff for you. I think that's cool. Even if it does something once, like let's say you're just like I am turning my chromatic star into your chromatic sphere, which I think is legal and historic. Correct? Which chromatic effect is? Yeah, chromatic, one of them. I don't remember which yeah, one. But. Star, I think. Just turn that into something a little bit better. It's maybe like part of a lock piece or part of an artifact combo synergy, and then that's that might be good enough. Who knows? But there's there's some stuff to be had here, and I think we'll see it part of part of a larger synergistic deck on Magic Arena. What's the best thing you can get if you sack an Icor Wellspring? Or at three? Yeah. I mean, three bridge. three is where stuff gets more interesting. I mean, bridge is bridge is not in historic. 
right? No, no, it's no, not. not. That'd be really good. But iCore Wellspring is right. right? So, you, so you get all this extra value from it as well. Sure. Yeah, because you draw a card when it comes in and when it goes away, right? I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I'm thinking about too, just in the back of my mind, Sam. Where it's like, what's our Iker Wellspring? What's like our, uh, you know, the the flourishing fox? What's the the sad robot? You know, what I mean, like, what's all the stuff that is either just raw value or synergistic value or combo ish that this card can support? And I think that exists. Yeah. All right, Shane, I think it's your turn to uh, to do this. We're going to go one or two more rounds, right? Because I've, gonna... I've got a couple. There's a couple I think are that actually have potential. Uh, and the first is Grim Wanderer, one in the black, Goblin Warlock, 5-3 with Flash. Wow, that sounds really good, Shane. Oh, wait. <laughs> it, it has the immortal evergreen... Uh, a, fa- a keyword of tragic backstory. Cast a spell only if a creature died this turn. Okay, that's not a big deal if a creature died this turn. This is in black, a creature with flash, 5-3, one in a black. Yeah, that's great. Like, I mean, that's that's going to see some play. Probably not in modern. Pioneer, historic, you're going to see this card get cast, and you're going to be like, whoa, that was quite the turn of events. Like, mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. they killed the creature, they flashed in a 5-3. I, t- I tapped out to like attack in, and then they're swinging back at me with a with, with five, 5 power. That sucks. Yeah. I like this card. I can't believe it's a goblin. It's very funny <laughs> that it's a goblin to me. It doesn't look like a goblin in the art at all. Yeah, it's weird. I do worry a little bit about, like, yeah, definitely more, more so in historic-y kind of spaces, I think, if you ever... I mean, it's a pretty aggro card, right? Where you're kind of like, I'm going to kill some of your stuff, and then I'm going to get out of big threat for cheap seems seems possible it's the flash the flash is what makes it that's true because you can do it on either turn then yeah i mean if it was if it was just like some you know dying synergy you know what i mean like that's cool stan what do you have next are you done was that it for you well in terms of cards that i'm excited about i might be done in terms of cards that i'm keeping an eye out for i mean there's stuff worth keeping an eye out yeah for sure here's one i'd love to pick your brains on Yuan T. Malison. Yeah. It's one in a blue for a snake rogue. It's a 2-1. It can't be blocked as long as it's attacking alone. And whenever it deals combat damage to a player, venture into the dungeon. So the rogue deck in Historic, and, and Standard for that matter, has really good rogues in it already. It, it, and for that reason, I think the threshold for new creatures entering it is quite high. And the rogues you really want to keep an eye out for is anything with flash, because especially in Historic, it's a very flashy, almost controlling deck. But the fact that this ventures into the dungeon for free and is un- essentially unblockable, while potentially like lording up and filling opponent's graveyard if, if, if you have the, the blue-black flyer lord, Soaring mm-hmm. Sky Thief, I think this is one that could make that cut just because that extra dungeon triggers is free. I totally, this is one that I looked at too, as being one possible card that was cheap enough and could get enough repeat value on uh, venture into the dungeon. Mm-hmm. So I, I could see it if, if there is something, maybe there, maybe there's a reason to make rogues into a venture deck because you can grind out some extra value with the threat or something like that. Yeah. I, I don't think it's solving any of rogues problems. Right. Which is, maybe one of the issues with this card, but the fact that it has some sort of inherent synergies with the deck and 
being a pretty threat-like deck in the first place, attacking alone isn't really that big of a setback either. Mm -hmm. All right. My next one that I have is I wanted to talk about the Hand of Vecna. Do we think this is a thing? Three generic for (laughs) legendary artifact equipment at the beginning of combat on your turn equipped creature or a creature you control named Vecna gets plus X plus X until end of turn where X is the number of cards in your hand. Equip, pay one life for each card in your hand and then equip two. Also, it has two different equip costs. You can either pay the life or pay the equip two. Yeah. I mean, that's cool. At the beginning of combat on your turn. Can you do that first equip at instant speed? No, it would say that on it if you could. Yeah, I think equip equip defaults to sorcery. It would say it would say pay one life for each card in your hand. Colon equip hand of Vecna to target creature. Kind of the way uh, whatever the other card is written. Right, we're thinking about the same cranial planning. Card. Yeah, cranial okay. planning. Okay. Yes. I, yeah, I just didn't remember the templating on that one. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of thought this card was like a maybe a cool thing. I don't know exactly where it would go, but it feels powerful to me. And the cost is medium high, but it's not too high i mean it's the same as a sword of course it doesn't do as much as a sword but um it seemed pretty cool to me the the thing that makes this intriguing is just the free equip cost exactly as a bailout if you're like way ahead you can just get Mm -hmm. even farther ahead yeah i i would not be surprised to see this not do much but i do think that i'm it's 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 definitely worth watching because you can yeah you can definitely do like a protect the queen or king type strategy protect the royalty type mm-hmm. strategy where it's, you know, just you, I, I've got a flyer, I've got some blue counter magic, I've got a, a, f- a grip full of flash cards and, you know, interactive spells that are going to protect my things. And yeah, uh, my, my flyer is, you know, plus five, plus five, and I'm just going to protect that thing for a while. It's not my favorite. It's I me. Mean, it's a, definitely a fun way to win when you win with it for sure. But I don't know if that's like, when are you going to get the three mana artifact down in a deck like that? So, yeah. All right, do we want to do one last lightning round and then go on to yeah, the down? I, I think that there's, yeah, there's probably one, one, one thing I'm surprised you, neither of y'all brought up was Sphere of Annihilation. Mm-hmm. Uh, X and a black artifact. Artifact. Uh, it ETBs with X avoid counters on it at the beginning of your upkeep. Exile the Sphere of Annihilation. All creatures and planeswalkers with mana value less than or equal to the number of void counters on it and blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying? They come out of graveyards. To, uh, it just basically blows stuff up with X or fewer avoid count, uh, of the number of void counters that you paid, and it's only X and a black. It's an artifact. That's the only reason I'm interested. One of the only reasons I'm interested in this is because there's a lot of ways to get artifacts out of your library to tutor them up to you know, and and therefore I think that it will probably be some kind of thing in a black based control deck in historic and pioneer I, I i'm certain i will see this get played against me on arena there you go Thank, thankfully it exiles itself so you can't like emery loop it and stuff like right. that that would be right. nonsense but you you could put it in a Luris deck yeah which is i think a pretty sure powerful can. effect for a Luris deck to have all right stan what's your last last shot here's another for your consideration a potential best um eternal card and that's devour intellect Ah, you took my last pick. That was mine too. Go ahead. Well, here, how you take it? I can I can throw one other one at you. I was just gonna say. I mean, how how much should we get? A, how excited will we be 
if we were able to, um, I mean, it feels like extra thought seizes with Ragavan is honestly right. what I was thinking about. It's like, totally agree. Totally how agree. bad is it if you just cast it on its own? It's not great, but the, the ceiling is huge if you manage to cast it off a of Ragavan treasure. So yes. And it's just so easy to make treasures in, in modern and in, in other formats right now too. Yep. All right. You can have that one presented for your consideration. Another one that I think is probably only historic level. Eye of Vecna. Yeah. Two colorless for two generic mana for a legendary artifact. When it enters, you draw a card and lose two. And then at the beginning of your upkeep, you may pay two generic. And if you do draw and lose two more, you can play it with Luris because it's only two mana. It, you can potentially draw a ton of cards off of it. I think it's okay in multiples. And I wonder if this is a new thing that you can use to enable a Death Shadow deck in Historic, especially because that's a deck that's just not getting there yet. And I think Death Shadow is such a powerful card that this is a pretty powerful effect to maybe help enable that creature. Interesting. I also was thinking about this honestly in like auras out of the sideboard or something where you, you gain so much life that you don't care or where you're like, okay, I'll just have this in my sideboard. And if I want a personal howling mind to just draw even more cards, but you draw a lot of cards in auras anyway. So that's not really your, the trouble generally, but uh, interesting with Death Shadow. Shane, do you like either Eye of Vecna or Devour Intellect? I don't think that Death Shadow just needs more way to lose life. I think it needs a lot more. So I don't know. Eye of Vecna. Yeah, they're both sweet. They're both they're both great cards. <laughs> <laughs> we got it. I, lo- All I right. love them. So we'll probably talk about some more cards from this set next week. If we find more to talk about, see how things shake out for a few days. Yeah, we might have some hands-on experience by then. Just- depending on what breaks out immediately after the release of the set. Exactly. We're going to take a quick break, and then I have a surprise in store for my co-hosts and the listeners. They didn't know that you know this we was coming. You know surprises on Mike. Yeah, I, I just came up with this 10 minutes before we started recording, and we are going to run with it, so stay with us. back so guys uh i've actually put together a bit of a, a mini game for us to play as part of the wind down we love games why not we play it on the show and are we venturing into the dungeon similar kind of yeah let's call it that let's call it the venture into the dungeon game what i need you to do to play along with me is to close scryfall okay all right it's already been closed all right it's closed so as you know this set has Five to six hundred different ability keywords that only appear on one card. Yeah. And what I would love to do is read off some of these keywords. And to the best of your ability, I'd love to hear you guys either tell me what the keyword does or the name of the card that it's on. Oh, this is this is a good sure. wind down okay. content. That's you like that? Yep. I'm gonna lean back. All right. What does tie up do? Ding ding ding. Is this real answers only, or is this yeah. wrong answers only? No, I, I'm, I, I'm, 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 I'm dinging in. Yeah, are we dinging uh, I'm, I'm for gonna, this? I'm, yeah, we're yeah, dinging, dinging for this. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna guess that. I'm gonna guess that it taps target creature. It doesn't untap during the next. It's it's controller's upkeep. Yeah, that's it. Do you know the name of the card that it's on? The oh, it's it's on the it's on the ten zillion feet of rope or whatever. Yeah, yeah, fifty, 50 feet, feet of rope. rope. Good job. It, it costs three to do that to tie up, but that is that is the ability. Oh heck yeah! You're not looking at Scryfall, are you? Type to type to type type. No. Okay. Okay. I'm leaning back away from my computer. What does Bewitching Whispers do? Ding. David? I think, does it make you, does it make you discard a card from your hand? Uh, 
Oh, Shane for the steal. Bewitching whispers. Does it? Uh, does it? Does it steal? Does it steal something of mana value X or less or something like that? I'm like I'm bewitching it. Uh, ah, poop. It makes target creature block this turn of fable. Oh, that's pretty good. Doesn't that? Doesn't that? card the card that that's on also have another ability that's also a whisper of something it's like whispers of the dead or something uh, whispers of the grave yeah it's on shesra death's whisper yeah it's a lot of whispering going on in that on the nose yeah i should have whispered that question the idea i love the uh, villains that whisk like have a whisper is always really funny but then when you think about what they sound like when they would actually talk it's like imagine <laughs> them in a movie where they're just like pss, 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 like constantly just i love gold <laughs> All right, all right, here's one. I'm, and I'm trying to stick to cards that we haven't talked about today to make it a little sure. harder for you. I think this might be one of the longer abilities. It's called Dark One's Own Luck. I ding, I know this, I know this card. This is like, this is like, look at the top card of your library and you may play it if something happens and you have to, is, isn't it something like that? Like it's, uh, oh, all right. Shame all right. for the steal. Uh, does it involve a die 20? Uh, ostensibly, yes. Oh, hmm. hmm. Is it is it one of the results of a die twenty roll? Is it like the twenty? Okay, no. I'm does this gonna... let you? Does this let you get an extra roll? No. no. So is this Quark's thumb. <laughs> no. So this is, is this on... Quark's whisper. No. <laughs> All right. This is on Faraday, Devil's Chosen. Yeah. Which is a tiefling warlock. Whenever you roll one or more dice. Devil's Chosen gains flying and menace until oh. end of turn. If any of those results was 10 or higher, draw a card. Ah. Stan, give, give, give us a softball on the next one or two. Okay, this one should be easy. Keen senses. What? What is keen senses? Yeah, what does it mean if a creature has keen senses? Uh, every time I attack, I scry one. Dave, this mm. is this. You should know this. This is an underhand T-ball pitch. I don't think I know this one. Is it um, keen senses? Is it... I don't know, look at the top card of your opponent's library and put it back. You guys are making it way too hard on yourselves. It's on Owl Bear, and whenever Owl Bear enters the battlefield, you draw a card. Oh. oh. Well doesn't it doesn't really make sense. Keen senses. What's the name of that green version of Curiosity? Is it isn't it Keen Sense? Oh, I don't oh. know. Am I out of my mind? All right. All right. Last one? Okay, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I want to make sure I, I, I want to make a hard at make one that's hard since it's the last one. Yeah, the other ones were so easy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Here we go. The flavor. The flavor of this set. Okay. What does is inscrutable. Brave the stench do? If a creature Whoa. has brave the oh, stench. Oh, oh. Uh, there's that's the one. It's like uh when this creature I remember reading it today. It's like there's this zombie thing that like or a skeleton, then when it dies, you can either brave the stench and like get it back out of the, the graveyard. Or you can like let it rot and like something else happens, right? Like, and I think it's just a way to get this card back out of the graveyard. I think you get a treasure for it. I'm going to say, if you brave the stench, you get a treasure. Oh, like you're digging through it, like you're looting it. You guys are so close and yet a bit too far. Shane, you were you're, you're talking about the right card. It's on Shambling Gast. It's a yeah. single black for a one one zombie, and when it dies, you choose one: brave the stench or search the body. Oh. Jeez. Brave the stench. Oh, so the search survival was a loot. Okay. Yeah. Brave the stench. Target creature and opponent controls gets minus, gets minus one. Minus one. Minus one. Yeah, that's it. Search the body, Dave. Create a treasure token. I remembered that from the card, but I, it was the wrong one. Hey, we, we got there together, Dave. All right. Good game, right? Yeah, beautiful. Let's yeah, play this fun. every week. Should we? Should we go into game design or just oh, yeah, me yes. by myself? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Great. 
listeners, let us know if you like that, or send us ideas for future games that we can play on the wind down. We're just gonna slowly, slowly just complete our evolution into good luck high five. <laughs> Is that what they, they have do? Way more fun than us. I've, I've actually never listened to their show. Oh, they're 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 boatloads of fun. I don't doubt it. I love their commentary. But for now, that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to us or pitch a game for a future wind down, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash the dive down. If you'd like to support us while playing Magic, you can sign up for Mana Traders using coupon code THEDIVEDOWN2021. All one word. Get 15% off your first two months of renting Magic Online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere in Spaceflood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and venture into the dungeon! baby we are here recording tonight all night tonight's show is gonna be right all right put my episode under the tree for me we're recording our podcast tonight